if we're open, our complexities come in clutch. That's actually what allows you to arrive at your own beautiful enlightenment. And for me, that's what our our identities are for. They're mm. for allowing us to arrive at a more beautiful place, individually and collectively. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing change makers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with somebody I'm really excited to be in conversation with. I've been a huge fan of her work since her very first single. My daughter is a huge fan of her work. Her song, Barbarian, is constantly played in our house and in our car. And so this is such a pleasure for me to have her here. I'm talking about Mona Hader. Mona is a Flint, Michigan-raised, Syrian-American daughter of immigrants who is a rapper, a chaplain, a poet, and an MA in Christian ethics. Billboard magazine named Mona Hader's breakout hit Hijabi, one of 2017's best protest songs and one of the top feminist anthems of all time. Her Ask a Muslim project, created in the wake of the Paris and San Bernardino terrorist attacks, garnered international attention and extensive press. The project was featured on the series The Secret Life of Muslims, and it remains the most watched episode of the series. As an MA student, Mona's worked as a chaplain at NYU, and she's studied post-colonial theology. Fresh off the success of her debut EP, Barbarican, and armed with an MA from Union Theological Seminar in New York City, Mona Haida comes here today to discuss her music, her spiritual path, and the power of art. Welcome to the show, Mona. For having me, Leila. I'm so excited to be here with you. Mona... I'm going to start with our very first question, which is around ancestors. Who are some of the ancestors, living or transitioned, societal or familial, who have influenced you on your journey? Yeah, I mean, for me, the prophetic path is a big part of my life. You know, those who speak the truth, no matter what tradition they come from, no matter what geographical location they come from. I'm very influenced by archetypes like Mary and Jesus. And of course, there are more recent people. But for me, it's not like a coincidence that those people's names are just repeated throughout history and Mm. throughout the the world and the universe. And, you know, like the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, his name was mentioned in the space beyond time, beyond space. And like, for me, that's that's pretty dope. <laughs> Talk about a good ancestor. You did in, in a thought of God before time and space. 
But of course, like I live in New Mexico. And so for me, the indigenous population of this land specifically really speaks to me and my heart and, and my goals in life because understanding myself as a colonized body, working on decolonizing this body and this mind, people like Black Elk and just like the women out here in the world who have been nameless for so long, who do the work of struggling against mm. the corruption of man that seeks to extract and destroy the earth. So, I mean, like I could sit here and rattle off names, but for me, often like it's the people who are most forgotten who I'm just like, I'm one of those people who talks to the planet, who talks to the earth. Like it's a part of me. It's a part of us. And, um, thanking the earth for those nameless people and beings who who made it so that I could be here in the consciousness and in the way that I am in relationship with this planet. I could rattle off the names like, you know, like I was fangirling Alice Walker, you mm -hmm. know, like I got to speak at a conference at a film festival with her and like, what? Like, what? <laughs> So of course there's stuff like that, but yeah, I mean, just like honoring all of the, all of the women who fought so hard throughout all of the centuries and destinies so that we could be here doing this work. Mm. I love that you've started us there because I think we can, in this day and age, get so enamored with the people who have the bigger names and the more well-known public images that we forget that this work of lineage and passing down lessons does not have to be big affair, right? And that oftentimes those who are passing down the lessons that are so important to us, a lot of times, you know, didn't necessarily become more well-known names, and yet their work was just as important. That really resonates with me as I think about my own lineage and sort of like my grandparents and great-grandparents, like the work that they did. My grandmother comes into my dreams often. Wow. My, my maternal grandmother, often she's in my dreams. And she's not some big celebrity out there somewhere. She's my grandmother, right? But she, in our family, was that presence for us. She meant so much to us. And the way that she was, her sense of being and the things that she did and the lessons that she instilled spread out to, you know, all of us, her children, me and, you know, my cousins. So that means a lot to me that you said that. Yeah, I mean, I I just feel like our grandmothers, you know, a lot of them will will never go down in history, but they're these badass women who, like, my maternal grandmother, Saad Nakshabendi, she got out of a bad marriage with an abusive husband and, you know, took her children from that marriage and, like, found her life and was a midwife in Damascus, Syria, ended up marrying this much older man who was, like, in her neighborhood who was an artist and like the first filmmaker in Damascus and, you know, kind of like made her life over. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about like the twenties and thirties and forties right? and fifties. And like, this is 
the Middle East, this is the Levant where, you know, like you want to talk about every stereotype of women. Well, like that was the whole world back then. You couldn't do anything without a man, no matter if you were in Scandinavia or wherever, you know? And like, she's never going to go down in history, but here she was like fighting for her life and making the life that she wanted. And um, I just respect that so much. And I wouldn't be here if not for her choices, you know, her choices to decide to leave an abusive relationship, her choices to like make a good life for her children that she had and the children that she would have. And like, she wouldn't settle. You know what I mean? Mm. Like she wouldn't just be like, Oh, this is my life. Right. You know, decided no like my life gets to be what I wanted to be even though it was hard and challenging even though the community didn't support her and look down on her for it and um for me that's a good ancestor right (laughs) breaking those cycles like you can sit here and name drop all day long but it's those people who put in the hard work in the mundane reality of the world breaking cycles, breaking toxicity and disrupting negative cycles and saying, you know what, I'm going to do a a better version of what I see out here. And I'm going to try my hardest to be a better reflection of what a human can be for my children and my pride and so that I can be a good ancestor. Like, yeah, you know, grandmothers, man, like that's huge. I, I think about my grandmothers all the time. Like I have this, you know, my other grandmother, she was just a hard ass. She was like the only woman in her community, in her neighborhood who could read and write. And mm-hmm. so she had this gathering in her house, literally teaching women to read by teaching them Quran. And mm-hmm. they would just in her house and she would teach these illiterate women to read and, you know, she had, I don't know, 11 children or something. I think it was 11. I always forget that number. But many of her children died. And, like, what that means for a woman when you have children who pass away before you and what that mm-hmm. is. And, like, yeah, our grandmothers, man, like, that's everything. Mm, I love that so much, Mona. And I see in you somebody who is fighting for her life, for the life that she wants to create in her, in her truth. You are to so many different people who are, and it's sort of their brains get a bit scrambled because they want to put you in a box, right? Oh, wait a minute. She's American, but she's Syrian, but she's a poet, but she's a chaplain, but she studied Christian ethics. And, you know, she's a hijabi and she raps like, I'm, what? I know I have a hard time keeping up with it all, honestly. But I appreciate you so much because I, myself, in other different ways, sit at these different intersections of identities and experiences. And for so much of my life, felt like I'm so confusing for other people to have to deal with. Like, it's so hard for me to explain to other people who I am, where I come from, why I have this experience, but also this experience, and I do this, but I do that. And it means so much to me when I see a woman like you who is living all of those things simultaneously and saying, you will not cut off a part of me to make it easier for you to understand me. I am all of these things at the same time. And it upsets me that that is so radical, such a radical revolutionary notion. But the, right. fact, the fact is, is that it still is. 
what are some of the, the things that you've had to work through to get to that place of this is all of who I am? Yeah, I mean, it's not easy breaking out of the norm. Like even just growing up, you know, knowing that you're different from your friends and you have different goals and aspirations. I was always like the weird kid who liked the weird shoes and I wasn't in the Skechers and I, <laughs> you know, I didn't have the Jansport backpack or whatever. And there wasn't always like a big reason for it. It was just because like in a lot of ways I couldn't care less. And in other ways, like I cared so much, right? you know, I just cared about other things. And I feel like I have to give credit to my mother <laughs> Like she moved from Damascus, Syria, not speaking English. And she just had this tenacity that she was just going to go out and learn this language and this country. And she was going to make it work for her. And even if it didn't want to work for her, she was going to make it work. Right. You know? And um, yeah, she just broke out of the norm. Like she wasn't your typical like uh, Syrian housewife. Like she had eight children and then her eldest was in college and she was like, you know what, I'm going to enroll in college. And she did. And every time my mom was like, okay, slow down. Like you're doing too much. You're being too extra, like chill <laughs> with the lipstick and the blah, blah. And I'm just like, well, it's your fault. Like, you know, <laughs> like, and I have you say to the Baitic, like you raised me like, <laughs> the way that you raised me. Right. You I really am somebody who believes that if your heart is on the path to God and you really are truly trying your best to be kind and loving and generous, like, of course you make mistakes and of course you slip up and of course you're ignorant of certain truths and realities. But like, if you're out here trying your best all the time, like God just has a way of opening the world for you, even when it's challenging and hard. And that even the things that appear to be challenges in your life ultimately end up being gifts and mercies that show you like what needs to be your priorities and what needs to not be and what needs to like get a move on in your life you know mm. for me it's about perspective like this little kitty she's beautiful and she has these interesting markings she has kind of tiger stripes like mm. is she blue? is she black is she caramel like she has all of that you wouldn't identify her as one or the other she's complex and she's committed to who she is being complex you know she's not yeah. gonna call herself a striped kitty or a salad kitty <laughs> she's just out here like living her best life kittying you right, know right and, like we get really caught up in identifications and identity politics and I feel like that's important to a certain degree. And then at a certain point that falls away and you realize like, oh, actually I'm earth. And that is my most important identity. I am an ancestor and that is my most important identity. I am, you know, on my way to, to becoming, yeah. um, that is my identity. And, um, identity is this like super complex thing that we could talk about forever. But, um, I struggle. It's not easy to break out like nobody in the community that I grew up in is doing anything like what I'm doing. Um, I don't know anybody doing what you're doing. I mean, I could probably name other 
women Muslim rappers, for example, or musicians, but not who are chaplains who've studied Christian ethics. You are so unique. Each one of us is. But I can imagine that being in the position that you are in and continuing to sort of do your work and gain more more people becoming aware of your of you and your work, right? There's a lot of pressure that comes with that, with people wanting you to conform either way to their ideas of who you think they should be, right? So you have people who are heavily hold that white supremacist ideology who are viewing you through a certain lens. And then you have people from your own community, other Muslims who also view you through their own lens of of how and who they think you should be. You have it coming at both directions at the same time. That's a lot to cope with. I remember at one point, I think it was earlier this year, we had had a conversation and you'd said you had unfollowed everyone on social media because you needed to for your own mental well-being. There's a lot that comes with doing this work and being in this position. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of pressure and people look at me and they want to like put me in one box or another. Like I'm just a Muslim woman and I'm just a chaplain or I'm just a musician. And it's hard for people to even like have compassion with themselves, with their own complexity, let alone have compassion and like try to understand someone else's complexity. So for me, like, it's about being gentle. It's about being like super gentle with yourself and with the world because everybody's out here hurting and struggling. And, you know, I I got a message last night from somebody who had seen me perform recently and they were talking about their suicidal tendencies and such. And it just put me in this state of heart, in this state of mind that man, like you just really never know what people are going through. Like I've had my own bouts of depression. You know, I've experienced postpartum depression. And I think those kinds of things come into my life, at least. I don't know about other people, but they come into my life and they they make me softer, not harder. Mm. You know, they make me softer for myself. And they make me softer and more tender towards everybody else. And, and I believe people often want to feel like we're in competition with one another and the softer and more tender I get, (laughs) the less competitive I feel and the less I want to compete. Like I just don't have that angst anymore that I need to be better or prettier or whatever. Right. I just really believe that there's space for all of us doing our unique work and that God is going to put you in the perfect place for you to attain your own brand of enlightenment if you want it you know if you try for it the divine is kind and loving and generous and you know like if we're open our complexities come in clutch that's actually what allows you to arrive at your own beautiful enlightenment and for me that's what our our identities are for they're Mm. for us to arrive at a more beautiful place individually and collectively. Yeah. Um, It's really interesting. I actually heard about you and your work through uh, Mirabai Star. I was in an online program of hers that was about the divine feminine. You know, I was exploring different things on my path and sort of trying to understand 
what is it for me when I express my faith? What does that look like? What does that feel like? And how I wanted to nurture my relationship with, with Allah. And I was in this program and uh, I can't even remember what we were talking about, but it was, I think, sort of, she was looking at different known sort of archetypes or role models. And one of them was Muslim. And which is why I wanted to do the program because she was looking at it from all these different sort of interfaith perspectives. And in it, she mentioned you and your work and said that, you know, Mona Hader someone I really look up to. She's a close friend of mine. She does this work. And I was like, I don't know who this is. I'm going to go Google her because I was the only Muslim in that program. So I was like, (laughs) I want to know who this other Muslim lady is that she's talking about. And I came across your work. I think at the time, I'm not sure actually if your first single had come out, hijabi, wrap my hijab. I don't know if it had come out yet, but I, you know, had come across the work that you had done with the Ask a Muslim with your husband. And I was like, I like her. I really like her. And as I got to know your music and hear your music, it just was so, oh, like every single, we're always like, I want to hide as a new sun out. <laughs> Let's go watch the video, you know. Each one delivers its own message. And what I respect so much about you is you're so clear. I am a Muslim. I'm not a watered down version of a Muslim. I am a Muslim woman. And I'm going to point that out. I'm going to point this out. I'm going to look at that. I'm not going to be afraid of sort of sitting with the complexity of everything. And I think that the reason I'm talking about this is that thing that you just said about people are not willing to be compassionate with themselves. I see that so much and people are not willing to sit with the complexity, their own complexities within themselves. And so when they see it in someone else, it's like, what is she doing? She's not allowed to do that. Yeah. Right. She's not allowed to do that because I don't give myself permission to do that or to be that. And I have the same way become a lot softer and more tender as I allow myself to be this complex human being, if I allow myself to see my full humanity, of course I have to see everyone else's humanity then as well. It can't just be me out here like, yeah, I'm a whole human being, but all of you guys, you all have work to do, right? (laughs) Right. And that's the direction that in my own personal work, which will then filter out into how I do my workout in the world is really heading into is really being able to be with the complexity of being a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Lady, that is the work right there. Just like allowing yourself to be free and free. Like, I don't believe that freedom lacks discipline. You know what I mean? Freedom and liberation are the most disciplined undertakings because... Can you speak speak on that? Speak on that. I think I know what you're saying, but I want to make sure our listeners know what you're saying. Like, I'm not talking about the kind of freedom and liberation that just means, like, you just go out and do whatever you want and F everybody else and, you know, YOLO or whatever. Like, that's cheap. That is selfish. That's not self-care because self-care is a realization that you are an integral part of a collective, of an intergalactic collective, a universal cosmic collective that is divine and sacred. And when you just see you, 
and you're just out here for you, like that's small, that's cheap. Like when you tap into the network and you realize how held you are, like that's why the concept of having ancestors is so powerful because you realize you're actually part of a huge network that is holding you, that is caring for you, that is loving you into your best self, into your best existence. And um, for me, like I pray five times a day and it's hard for me. It's not like a beautiful, sublime experience every time I go and I wash and I stand and I pray and I like, you know, it takes time, it takes effort and it's not easy. And I just really believe that, like, for instance, having children, having pets, having a, a career that you're dedicated to, like those things are challenging. They take right. dedication. They take discipline, you know, having like for people who practice a martial arts, like even women who pole dance or people who pole dance, you know, like how disciplined you have to be, how your body has to be in a particular, (laughs) you have to be in shape, you have to be fit, you know, and that level of discipline is difficult. But once you master, once you master the basics, you're allowed to be free. You're Mm -hmm. allowed to like, freestyle, you know, and cultivate true mastery and like growing deep roots allow you to branch out and to grow and be free and liberated. Mm. But if you don't have those firm and deep roots and you don't have that discipline that's holding you down, you're going to fly away, you know, and you're going to get lost and you're not going to be on the path that you're meant to be on. You're not going to be on the path that that is meant for you because you just got caught up in this person's breeze and this right. person and you know, this trend and that trend. And, and I feel like social media, I feel like is a really good representation of that. Yeah. You know, it's just a, such a good representation of that because it's just this trend, that trend, the next thing, the next influencer, the next brand, right. the next challenge, whatever. And you could get caught up and swept up and and you could burn your entire life on that stuff that doesn't actually give you any purpose or meaning. Mm. Um, Drive you into something deeper and bigger. Talking about that network and that collective and that collective struggle for liberation. So I feel like when you have those deep roots, whatever the deep roots are. What do the deep roots mean for you? I know what they are for me. What are they for you? I think it's different for everyone. Yeah. I think like my spiritual tradition and transmission, my teachers, my my own discipline and dedication to my my work, looking at what's up for me, figuring out how I'm doing good, how I'm not doing good, like staying really grounded in the earth of being earth, <laughs> in the earth. Of being- <laughs> So humble and small and for me I believe that that's what makes you big so I love that you've talked about the discipline my my mentor Dr. Frantonia who I've interviewed on the show and talk about nearly every episode one of the things that she says which really has stuck with me is that sovereignty requires responsibility yes and that yes we are all worthy in our inherent being first of all and we are all deserving of sovereignty and it takes responsibility. It means having to take complete and total responsibility for every aspect of your life, your choices, your habits, the things that you think and do, 
the discipline, the dedication, the commitment, all of that. And that's, like you said, you said it's cheap to just want freedom without, without any sense of responsibility or commitment or discipline. And so, you know, one of the things that is important for me is my continuing mentoring sessions to have somebody who is an elder, has walked her path and is walking her path and who is able to help me, you know, guide me, walk alongside me as I walk my own path, keeping me accountable to being the best version of myself and the the me that I want to be in the world, right? That's really important for me. Every session is pretty intense, right? So I'll be working with her for a long time to come because- That's a good mentor though. She really is, right? There is no comfort zone. We're always on the edge, right? On the edge. But she does so in a very loving and compassionate way. My spiritual practice as well, my faith, Islam, and so many of the things that you've spoken about so far, you know, I smiled inside when you spoke about them because I've gotten through really hard times by coming back to those Islamic spiritual principles. And I've been able to grow through betrayal, people being very harsh with me and not turning around and wanting to attack and not wanting to turn around and get revenge or wanting harm to come upon them because that goes at odds with my Islamic faith, my faith, my values, and then the important relationships in my life, my husband, my children, my parents, my close network of friends who keep me grounded, who are, you know, just beautiful, strong women who are on their path as well and who remind me to be both tender and fierce. And this practice of, for me, and this is a lot of what I've learned through my mentoring work as well, for me, it's about, I can't be this martyr and this savior for other people. Like I have to fill myself up first and then everybody else gets what comes from the overflow. Because if I do it any other way and I have done it other ways, not sustainable. And I end up burnt out and I end up resentful. And then I end up doing harm because I was running on empty. Yeah. So this practice of continuously filling myself up with pleasure, with joy, with time, with rest, with what I need, everyone else gets the benefit of that. I mean, I just wanted to speak to your running on empty thing. Like, I feel like as women specifically women in this world and coming from cultures like we do, you're socialized that that's how you're meant to be. That's what makes you a good woman. Right. (laughs) You know, you're a good mother and a good wife. If you give all of everything of all of you and die for your family, right? (laughs) Right. you know, like if you die for your, your family, like, no, I want to live for my kids. That's right die for them. I want to live for them. I want to be alive for them, celebrate their wins, you know, nurse their wounds and like be there for them. And I can't do that if I'm dead. Like whether I'm physically dead or whether I'm dead on the inside. I just checked out. Dude, I see so many of the first generation women who immigrated to America who are just like on meds to make them feel alive because they're dead on the inside because they gave everything and now their kids are gone their kids have their own kids and now they they feel like they have nothing right and no one and they never cultivated hobbies they never cultivated joy they never cultivated like what do they like to do who are they right. you know 
I just see that. And it's such a huge wound in the immigrant community in this country, um, in the U.S. And I think in other places as well. But I'm just out here like I want to I want to be alive to witness the revolution. (laughs) Right. And that's such a privilege that we have. Right. As first generation children of immigrants that our parents did not have. You know, I have conversations now with my mother a lot around the work that I do and what it was like for her and my dad as immigrants to the UK and some of the things where they just had to be like, yeah, we see it happening, but we can't say anything or do anything because we are trying to build this life. We are trying to create this life. And I'm grateful that I'm able to witness it, this level of freedom now that I see that my mother has that yes, everything that she does is still for her children because that's just who she is. And at the same time, like she's out here like traveling. She's out here like building her own little empire. Like we took them out for dinner the other day and we picked them up and they, I was like, are you guys aging in reverse? Because they're out there with their like trendy outfits, you know, they're looking young. And that was not my experience growing up with them. They were really yeah, my mom was an old lady. Right. She was an old lady when she was in her thirties and forties. Right. She right. acted an old lady. And now she's out here like inf- inviting my friends out to yoga. I'm like, okay. <laughs> what are you doing? Mama? <laughs> I love it. I do see that it's a privilege and recognize that they had to put in a lot of hard work. Yeah. To be able to, to be free and to right. do what wanted to do and to have choices and options. Like I said, I don't think I would be the woman I am if it were not for my mother putting in that hard work of, of breaking tradition of like, right. being like, I don't care that none of y'all other women are going to college. I'm going to go to college. I don't care if y'all judge me because I have small ch- children and I'm out here founding a school and doing whatever, like I'm going to have a job. It is hard and you, you eat shit sometimes and you have to but it means that the next person doesn't have to. Right. But I think the difference is, or the balance is that you, you know how much shit you can eat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you got to take on too much, you know, and yeah. you, you feel like you have to be the single person right. to, to die for the cause and to struggle like, no, this is about community building. This is about working together to attain right. collaboration. And that if one of us is out here thinking that we're the Messiah and that we can do it single-handedly, we don't really understand what liberation is, you know? That's right. Um, because it, it's all of us. It's all of us. Yes. This is so important, what you're saying right now, because we're having this conversation. So I am an author and a speaker and a teacher, and I do this work called me in white supremacy, right? You are a, well, for now, and and I'm sure there will be even more things to come, right? And you are this amazing poet, rapper, chaplain, like activist, like out here doing all of these different things as well, really using art as a way to, for me, this is how I receive it. Your art educates, it inspires, it protests, it challenges, like it calls forth, it calls out, it calls in, it's doing all of these different things. And I love that you are here doing this work because we need all of us doing it all in our own unique 
way, that there is not one way and there is not one form. There is not one channel through it that it must be done through, that it needs everyone using their skills, their creativity, their imagination, their passion, their artistry to put forth. This is my medicine that I'm offering here. I tell my students all the time, like the world needs you. Mm. Like you were born into this time, into this place, because the world needs your specific brand, your specific medicine, your specific whatever it is. You have a job. You have a purpose. You are here for a reason. Now find out what that is and do it because when you do that, when you are, when you be from that place of love, from that place of like divine purpose, some people are like, oh, you'll never do a day of work in your life. No. No. becomes the work right right separate from it right and I feel like a lot of people burn out because they're not pouring from a place of deep roots you know they they burn up and burn out because they're pouring from a shallow place and I've been there a hundred times a million times where I'm just pouring out and I'm forgetting that like oh, damn, like I didn't do what I know feeds me and sustains me and fills me up and brings me joy and allows me to be this divinely purposeful being in the world, you know? And I don't know, like I'm just at a place in my life right now where, you know, there's this hadith of the Prophet Muhammad and he says that it's actually a hadith Qudsi where God is speaking on his tongue and he says that, there comes a time when God will become the eyes by which you see mm. and the ear by which you hear and the, the hand by which you do, you know, and the feet by which you walk. And when you come to God walking, God comes to you running, mm-hmm. you know, like if you extend this much. He extends that much. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that, that is not a verbatim quote. By right. The way. <laughs> that right. Is a, a poetic rendering, but for the most <laughs> My vague one wasn't either, so. <laughs> Bad Muslim. <right> <laughs> my friend had a t-shirt that said, like, the most mediocre Muslim or something. <laughs> so, no, but for me, it's the spirit of it. That The part that I just said, that God becomes the, the eyes by which you see, that is verbatim. The ears mm. by which you the hands by which you do. Like, Everything becomes an extension of the excellence and the purpose and the goodness that you pour out from from being your most authentic self, from doing what you're here to do on this planet at this time. And that when we're all doing that, when we all are operating at that level, doing our best in our little corners, healing our trauma, looking at all our garbage that we have to deal with, and when we're all in the work of doing that, we will live in that more beautiful world. When we're all just like in our little corners doing that, doing our best, like the world will be more beautiful. But the problem is, one of the problems is, (laughs) I should say, is that we have people truly believing that their brand of righteousness, their brand of dogma, their brand of whatever ideology it is, is the only. And it's like, no, like God, 
God could have made just one religion. God could have made just like one ideology. And like, there's a reason for the complexity. There's a reason for the diversity. And that diversity is meant to be celebrated. It's meant to be honored and loved because it's what creates this beautiful, intricate world that we're all a part of. And that's beautiful. We're not out here trying to like become one culture one tradition, one way, like that's not right. You know, God could have did that, but we, that's not where we're at. That's not the reality of the universe. Just like look outside and see all the different kinds of trees, all the different kinds of bugs, all the different kinds of birds, you know, like there's not one kind of bird. There's not one kind of cat. There's not one kind of tree. There's not one kind of leaf, one kind of plant, one kind of dirt. Yeah. Biodiversity should just like offer us a, a glimpse at the fact that it's all good if we're all in our lanes doing our best. Right, right, right. This brings me on to my next question, which I'm sure is a question you get a lot. The question of what made you decide to study Christian ethics? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to go back for a second. You know, I had said like, when you're being your best, like imagine if an oak tree was out here trying to be a pine tree. Right. (laughs) (laughs) imagine if a cat was out here trying to be a dog right you know like we live in that world right we well we do and this isn't to judge people on their journeys it's just to say that like we live in a world where white supremacy is the religion of the day it Mm. is the the opioid of the masses the opium of the masses and um we bought into it and that takes me perfectly into Christian ethics. <laughs> like white supremacy is so interwoven and intertwined into the concept of white supremacy, world domination, empire, colonization. Mm-hmm. A lot of these ideas were propagated and spread through what was called Christianity. The idea that the white man was supreme, like, they pulled that out of the Bible. It's a mistranslation, a misinterpretation of what the Bible actually said, certainly. Mm. But they felt like they had theological foundations for saying, oh, we are Saxons, so we are more pure, we are more important, we have the right to subjugate the earth, subjugate other peoples, that these peoples are actually not whole peoples. They don't have souls. Mm. Therefore, can be slaves and servants, and they are just extensions of this earth which we dominate. You know, it's Indian theology. And for me, seeing that connection, seeing the way Christianity, and I don't actually call it Christianity, you know what I mean? It has nothing to do with Christ. This is empire that converted, this is Like, you know, they often say that the empire, the emperor converted to Christianity. Like, I don't believe that that's true. You know, when you actually look at the historical facts, it's that Christianity converted into empire. You know, Mm. Christianity as an ideology converted into this thing called empire and was taken and weaponized by empire and turned into this weapon that then went all around the world. Like, no part of the world has been safe from this weapon of colonization, of empire. Um, very few, what are they called? Like, 
the people who are still like untouched by the oh, rest okay. of the world. Right, right. Sort of indigenous people who have not connected yeah. with the rest of the world who maintain their, yeah. There's a term for it. But like, imagine if we had more of that in the world, if more right. of us has access to our indigenous traditions and cultures. Right. But instead we're out here like, all a hot mess and it's really a product of this this christian empire this colonization process that told certain peoples that we were bad that we weren't Mm. beautiful we had these features that made us less human you know we didn't have souls and therefore we we could be made into you know submissives and just to clarify for our listeners you're not talking about christianity itself as being inherently what you're describing because I know that people will hear this and not hear what you're actually saying let's make that distinction so that people are really clear yeah I am not talking about Christianity in its core as the teachings of Christ I am a follower of Christ I love Christ that's right I believe Christ that is not what I'm speaking of. I'm speaking of the weaponization process that was put upon a certain theological understanding that told some people that they were better than other people, that right. told some people that they could dominate other people, kill other people, take over other people's land, oppress people, enslave people, hurt people. I mean, like, kill people, lynch people. Like, that moves further on into the idea that the earth is also subject to right. these people's domination. And um, like whenever somebody is like, oh, haha, I'm so much better than that other person. Like there is an element of that inside of that. I'm not talking about white people. I'm not talking about Christianity. I am talking about systems That's and right. ideologies and theologies that tell some people that they're better than others, that tell some people that they have more of a right to live than other people, that tell some people that they are the cream of the crop, that they get to be out here on the earth doing whatever they want, and that's just not real. That is not real. Right. No matter who you ask, where you come from, it's funny, like we could even talk about Islam. Like that is that is the reason I, I studied Christian ethics specifically. As an American, as a Muslim American daughter of immigrants in this country, I just felt like I had to understand the foundations of what this was. And I read this incredible book that just shook my whole world and changed my whole life. It's called Stand Your Ground by uh, Kelly Brown Douglas. It weaves Trayvon Martin's story into the story of the founding fathers mm-hmm. and how this story led to this story. And it's just, it's a brilliant piece of work. But the reason I went and studied Christian ethics and specifically studied at Union Theological Seminary was because of a man named James Cone. Mm. He just passed away. He's the Mm -hmm. father of Black Christian theology. I was so blessed to be able to study with him. And um, he is the reason I made the choice to study at Union. There were other reasons, but, you know, as soon as I heard him speak and I read his work, I was like, this is it. This is for me. Because in Black liberation theology, just like in womanism, there is a reorienting, a reclaiming, a reinterpretation, a coming to understand 
that our voices and our stories must be the primary source, one of the primary sources that we pull from. Mm. Right? Just like white supremacy has done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Their own experience to say, well, this is what's beautiful. This is what's good. This is what's important. And they have said that theirs is the standard, right? So like a certain shape nose, a certain kind of mouth, a certain bone structure, a certain kind of hair, like that is what's beautiful. That mm. is what is you know, deemed like the most human and everything else is less than. And we have to do the work of saying, well, no, my grandmother's hands, my grandmother's nose, my grandfather's hair. Those are the stories that I know. Those are the, the beautiful features that I know and value. And those are the standard for me. That is my primary source to tell my stories from. That is my primary source that I'm pulling from. And for me, it just radically changed my life to witness that, that level of authority. Um, yeah. You know, like black people in, in America have done the hard work of coming to a newfound authority of self, a newfound, like you could even call it indigeneity, that like mm-hmm. I am of this earth and you can't tell me I'm not. You know, we both know Ebony, Denise. And right. She, that's who I was thinking of right now when you said, you know, that self-authority because that is what she teaches. Yes. And I love it when she talks about herself being like black mixed with black and nothing but black mm-hmm. because the world will have you believing that they get to tell you what you are. And as soon as you say, no, I, I get to define myself. I get to say with authority who I am. You don't get to tell me that I'm mixed or whatever, that I'm not pure blood, that I'm this and that I'm that. As soon as you say for yourself and own that authority and speak from it, like I learned so much and I owe so much to the black community, just like, just as a Muslim, let alone somebody who studied black liberation theology, but just as a Muslim in this country, I owe so much to the black community being that like, they have done this hard work of reimagining what it is to be alive in this world, you right. know, and, and struggling and fighting the, the, the fight against white supremacy and oppression and doing it with joy and mm. doing it like through incredible imagination of what is possible in the world. Right. That's such an important point that you're making because, you know, under white supremacy, you are marginalized at the intersections of, of race and, and your religion as well. And the experiences that Black Muslims are facing in America are different from, from white Muslims and Muslims who either pass as white or who are light-skinned, right? And that's Absolutely. a conversation that I know is often difficult to have because that proximity to whiteness, you know, white supremacy just seeks to reassert itself again and again and again. Black Muslims are often not the ones who are seen front and center, who are the most marginalized, who have to do the most work and get the least credit for it, and still have to deal with colorism and racism from white people and from non-black people of color as well. Absolutely, especially from the immigrant Muslim community. There's this sense that like, 
we just get to break into this society and be Muslim and like, how come, how come they don't accept us and how come they don't love us? Like, can you look around and take a minute to understand that people want to say like, okay, this isn't the oppression Olympics or whatever, but take a look around. Like you are indigenous American. You are not native American. You are not black American. Like you need to shut up and sit down and take a moment and learn something, study Study what made these people so beautiful. What makes Black culture be like the dominant culture of of the world right now? Like, think about hip-hop culture and how it's like, at this point, becoming mainstream. Like, why is that true? Because it comes from an authentic place of self-reflection, self-determination. Determination, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And like, you don't get that without hard work and you think you're just going to show up in this country and just be like, whatever. No, like, come on, immigrant Muslim community, like wake up, give credit where credit is due and, and work alongside your sisters and brothers in this struggle. And don't just expect everybody to fall down and worship you as soon as you start doing that work. Right. (laughs) Right. just want to be celebrated as soon as they start doing the work and it's just like no 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 like you can spend your whole life and nobody's ever gonna throw you a party like you know people were saying like do you want a cookie like right there are no cookies you know have to do the work and shut up and truly I believe it in the depths of my heart that we will come to a place when these are the conversations of the past because we have done the hard work Mm. and we have laid out our hearts on the line and our, our pride and our egos on the line and said that truly God did not create us superior, you know, white over black, black over white, like God created us equal. And we must, we must do the hard work of realizing that in this world as well, it's not something that is just going to come in the hereafter. Okay. That is what we do here and now. You know, and often people are like, well, that's what the akhirah is for. That's what the next life in the hereafter is for. That's when paradise is. No, I'm sorry to break it to you. We have to cultivate and create that paradise right here, right now. Not saying that it doesn't exist somewhere else, but saying that that work is important right now. And right. You can't, can't wait for the next life. No. You can't wait next life for equality and justice. I can't wait for the next life for equality and justice. I will be on the front line struggling with my sisters and brothers every step of the way because that is the right thing to do. And and my religion tells me that. My heart tells me that. My soul calls me to that. And it's not a black struggle. It's not a white struggle. It's not an indigenous struggle. It's a part of the earth struggle that we are beings of this earth here for a short time and we're meant to arrive at this recognition and realization that we are connected. And I actually, I found that quote and I did want to share mm, it. Please do. It's from Sheikh Ahmadu Bamba, who's a revolutionary. He said, uh, cultivate inner beauty and you will attain external beauty without artifice. For me, this whole conversation segues into that because when you are in the work of the revolution on the inside. Yeah. Your world becomes the revolution. That's right. You know? Yeah. You become a revolutionary no matter where you go, no matter what you do. And it's from a place of authenticity. Right. From a place of authority. It spills out of you. The beauty. Yeah. The beauty that 
you are that you're cultivating on the inside becomes everything that you do from right. the food that you make and that you feed your family and your loved ones to the work that you do out in the world to the way you are with your parents like all of that from the very mundane to the very grand scale like all of it all of it when you are cultivating the inner work the outer work it just falls into place yeah everyone is touched by it thank you so much that is something that i believe strongly but i i really appreciate you for sharing that quote because it just says it in this way that sinks even deeper for me so i really appreciate that it's it's beautiful and i can i can see that that is how you live your life as well because i know like we said earlier in this conversation that doing the work that you're doing and showing up regardless of marginalization and discrimination and racism outside of that being a creative person and saying i'm going to create this thing that doesn't exist and I'm going to birth it and put it out into the world. Like every time you release a song, I know it's like, how is it going to be received? Right. What are people going to say? Right. Like that's just part of the creative process. Like I'm, you know, a few months away from my book being out in the world and I'm like excited. Yes. I'm excited, <laughs> but I'm also like, please don't look at me anybody. You know what I mean? <laughs> so just doing that is, quite a journey in and of itself. And then when you add in our intersections of identities, it just adds all of these different layers. But I see you doing your work and the way that you be comes from this place. If you have a sense of discernment and you are somebody who is on the path yourself of doing that in a work, you recognize it when you see it in somebody else. It's not necessarily something that they're doing or shouting about. It's just the way that they're showing up, which is radiating from the inside out. And so I see you moving through your journey with this uh, grace that is beautiful, but it's also really human. You know, you're fr- you get frustrated, you get pissed off. Like, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you have all of that as well. You're a human being, right? Yeah. And you don't stay there. You don't live there in that place right? You allow yourself, this is how I experience it. You allow yourself to have that experience, but you don't then stay there and build your art just from that place. You are really focused, it seems to me, on what the bigger thing is that is calling you forward. And it is love is what it looks like to me. I hope so. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Leila, thank you for saying on that. Like I just... I cringe. <laughs> I cringe, you know, and, and it's funny. I, I'll tell you a little story. I was in a, I was in a Uber Lyft or whatever it was on my way to the airport recently. And, um, my, uh, driver was talking to me and she, she was really sweet. You know, I was so tired though, like starting an early day where yeah. I knew I was traveling all day. And this girl's like talking to me. Oh, you're my first ride, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, she gets into it. It turns out she's a pole dance teacher. And uh, she's like, oh, you should come to my class. And I'm like sitting in the backseat in my hijab. And I'm just like, girl, <laughs> you right now? I was like, well, do you have all women's classes? And she's like, no, not yet. But, you know, like whatever, we'll, we'll figure it out. And I was just like, well, okay, cool. You know, and at that point I was just like, bless her heart. Like she's trying. <laughs> 
anyway, we got to talking and she had said that she had this experience where, um, you know, a few years ago she had this spiritual awakening where she suddenly was able to like read people's energy and Mm. connect with the spirit realm and whatever. And I was feeling snarky at that point because she had just like told me to come to her pole dancing class. And I was like, well, go ahead and read me. Feeling like, okay, go ahead. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And um, she started to close her eyes. And she's driving. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't do that. And I was like, yeah, please don't close your eyes. She's like, oh, I, I've never done a scan before without closing my eyes. So she's like, this is going to be interesting. So she starts talking. And she's like, oh, I see your solar plexus is really bright and open and this and that. And then she goes, you know, but your throat chakra. And it's weird because I had told her that I was a performance artist. She's like, it's weird that as a performance artist, your throat chakra would be close, especially since you use your voice. Mm. Um, She's like, your throat chakra feels blocked and locked up. And she's like, and I feel like one of the things about you is that you can't allow people to truly see you like fully and that you can't take a compliment. <laughs> I died, Layla. I died. <laughs> oh my God. She read you. Witch, what are you doing? <laughs> You're like, get out, get out. Finish this gun. Finish this gun. <laughs> are we almost at the airport? <laughs> enough of this scam and she kept going and she was just telling me all of these like wildly relevant things but when she said all of that and she was like you know it seems like you're not speaking your full truth and you're not telling the whole story and the whole picture and it's because like you see the best of me like you are a beautiful person who's on her journey who who sees the best in people because you're doing your work you know what I mean and I feel like we're in similar situations where like you can't see that about yourself. Right. I can't see that about right. myself. Right. Oh, like you're so complex and you do all these things and you hold it all so well and you're a mom and you do yeah. this and that. And I'm just like, well, you don't know what kind of shit hypocrite <laughs> I actually am. Right. Like, I'm, like you have no idea. Like actually I'm garbage. Actually I write pages and pages and pages of lyrics and I get four lines. I'm actually a garbage writer. Right. You have that's no the dialogue in our minds. Yeah, exactly. And I just really honor you for being on the path to like owning all of it. And like I see you out here with your like I don't know. We talked about the priority list. And, yes. You, know, you out here like really doing the work to internalize like what's important. What am I doing? What can I give to myself and to the world? And like, wow, just like, thank you so much for seeing yourself and seeing others. Like it's not easy and it's not, it's not sweet all the time. And it's no. not gentle and it's not beautiful and it's ugly sometimes and it hurts sometimes like yesterday I just had to sit and journal for I don't know a good hour before I could go to sleep because I told you this person wrote to me and that you know like sometimes you just get shaken up and and you realize that your work has impact right and that it people and that for some people it triggers them 
you know, and like, you have to just allow it to be as a creative person. You just have to, okay, here it is world. Like don't yeah. shit on me bad. Right. <laughs> like, right. I don't know why we do it to be honest with you. <laughs> Other than something bigger says, Girl. this is what you're here to do because it's not fun. <laughs> For all the compliments and the, the ways in which others see us and you know, I, I shared something recently on, on Instagram and I said, your healing will inspire some people and it will trigger others, right? And that's so true. Like I see you and all I see is light. All I see is love. All I see is inspiration. All I see is like, I'm so glad there is someone called Mona Hader in the world, you know? Mm. And then other people see you and like, that bitch, you know, <laughs> they're just like, well, you know, yeah. she's a fake, she's a this, she's a that, she doesn't represent us. And I get that a lot as well, right? And what I have learned is that I came to a point, I reached a rock bottom point this year and I had to make a choice about knowing that it's going to be this and more of this. Like this won't go away. These experiences, these kind of really harsh, heartbreaking, harmful, violent, abusive experiences, they'll actually get worse the bigger you get. You'll actually receive more of this kind of stuff. So are you going to say... The highs get higher too. Exactly, right? So I had to make a conscious choice to say yes. And that came from, I have to say yes, because I've done so many things and nothing has felt more right than this. Mm. Right? And so I can't imagine you saying, do you know what? Like rapping and being a performance artist and being this person in the world is too hard. I'm going to just go and be, I don't know. (laughs) something else. I don't know what, right. But because it's so clear, this is where you're meant to be and what you're supposed to be doing. I laugh about the fact that I'm a rapper. (laughs) Like that shit is funny. Like, oh yeah. I like grew up thinking that my little hijabi Arab girl self from Flint, Michigan was going to grow up and like, (laughs) (laughs) That isn't what I thought. I couldn't even imagine that in my wildest dreams because I had never seen that before. Right. Oh, six, seven-year-old Mona had only ever seen like the Arab girl on the TV as the like nose job, bleached blonde hair, like the Lebanese chick on the TV who was Miss what Lebanon, whatever, 1997. <laughs> like, right. That's the only acceptable form of like Arab person in media, Arab woman in media. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes. Someone who was trying so hard not to be Arab, somebody who was trying so hard not to look like her people. And I couldn't even imagine it. And so for me to be here, like being who I am. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes the level of foolishness. I'll tell you that for free. You have to be some kind of foolish to be doing what I'm doing. Because people hate you for it. And, you know, I am a a non-black, light-skinned Arab woman who grew up in Flint, Michigan, who was born in Saudi Arabia, who is Syrian. Yeah. How many boxes are we checking off here for, you know? Hijab. Right. Right. You know, like doing hip hop. And so many like, your you your box just gets smaller and smaller as you you know say these identities of how much space people expect you to take up 
you're allowed to take up exactly and people are just like you do not belong you know mm. you don't belong in this space you don't deserve any of this space hip-hop is not for you you know take off your hijab you're doing a disservice to all muslims and i'm just out here like you know what you focus on your relationship with your creator right and let focus on mine and my journey and my purpose like like I'm about to cry right now, but like literally I I would have loved to choose an easier yeah. life for myself, for my right. children. Like I would have loved to have been a non-public person. And I never once asked for a microphone or asked for a platform or asked for a stage, but like this is my life. This is what my life has been since jump since I was 14 years old and everybody's like come to the open mic and perform and I have these butterflies and I know that this is where I'm supposed to be mm. even though I suck at it you know mm -hmm. even though I'm terrible at this thing called spoken word I know I'm supposed to be here I know this is my place you know and like God help all of us and be gentle with us because like it's not easy out here putting your heart out there for the world, producing something that comes straight from a very vulnerable place where yeah. you're talking about things that are, are bigger than yourself and things that are about community. You know, like people will just tear you apart and tear you to shreds because you're out just here. Just like that, like that. Right. Yeah. And you like pulled from your guts, right? To like put this thing out into the world and have just you, like that. Have you heard Princess Nokia's new song? I ha no, I haven't. No. Okay. It's called Sugar Honey Iced Tea. Yeah. And it goes, Sugar Honey Iced Tea, these bitches won't fight me. And she says in the song, I I'm not remembering the exact lyric, but she says something in the song about like, you want to talk about what I'm doing? Like, what have you done? Right. You know, like go do something. And I'm right. not talking about Twitter. Right. I'm talking about being an Instagram model and right. selling garbage on Instagram. Make your living. Do what you got to do to survive. But also go out here and do something with your life that is serving your soul. Right. That is elevating your soul and making your your life something that when you die, you didn't sell people jeans. Right. You know? Like you did something for the world. You gave your heart to the world. Right. You, know, you gave your heart and your best and you did everything that you could do and you left nothing inside of you that you could give. Right. I was yeah. going to say when you live from that place and that can be, that can be so individual what that looks like. You know, there's no prescribed path of what that looks like. Each one of us are so different. What I have found for myself, at least, is that when you live from that place, you can't shit on other people. You can't. Like when you see somebody and they're trying and they're, yes. you know, they're on their journey. Okay, they're going to mess up and make mistakes or whatever. But because you're like, I'm out here doing the same thing. I know what it's you like. Don't have time. You don't have time, first of all, right? <laughs> you're not checking for everybody else, right? You don't have time. And then you have, you have this compassion because you see a fellow traveler on the path 
and you know what it's like to put yourself out there in a way that is completely out of your comfort zone, in a way that feels totally vulnerable, and in a way that, like you said, can be of service to other people. You can't shit on people when you see them trying. Totally. I love this conversation so much, Mona. We've talked about so many different things, and I just feel very blessed by this conversation. To close up our conversation, what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? I think being a good ancestor means that you you left nothing mm. inside of your being that you could potentially give to make this world more beautiful and better. You know, we're in the midst of this climate crisis conversation, the climate catastrophe conversation, yeah. and like the apocalypse feels near, you yeah. know, it's close. It feels like I know every generation was like, oh, you yes. know, the Christ is coming and blah, blah. But like knowing that the earth is heating up, like seeing physical changes in the planet, like yeah. that is real and we can feel it. And there's this like collective feeling of angst that like we don't have time to waste. You know, yeah. and like we have the most options in the world now for time wasting. Right. You know, there have been more options for how to. That's waste right. <laughs> That's right. I just feel like pour out all your love, and mm-hmm. that's how you be a good ancestor. Pour out every toolkit that you can possibly dream up, pour out every imaginable possibility. Like, I'm really inspired by sci-fi and fantasy work. I read so much of it. And, like, a lot of our technology is born from sci-fi. That's right. Like, even just an iPad and something like that. Somebody had this crazy idea and wrote about it. And then somebody was like, hey, maybe I can make that. Right. Why can't that be a thing? Right. So maybe we just need to write all of the things. And imagine all of the worlds in which there is love and there is peace and there is beauty in abundance in this world. And that there is no child that dies of hunger. There is no mother that feels alone, you know, Mm. because for a lack of community, for a society that doesn't understand that, you know, young mothers or old mothers or whoever mothers need community, need society, need a, a tribe to hold them mm. and carry them through that experience. Like being a good ancestor for me is all of that. Just like pouring out everything you possibly can and imagining the world better, yeah. making it with your life, with your prayers with your works, with your being, with your just life, your entire life, with your breath. Yeah. Thank you, Mona. What's really going to stay with me from what you've said is about, you know, how everything feels so present right now. And I think when we use the word ancestor, we often think about like in the past, like living a long life, but we don't know what's happening right now, right? And we're at a time where we have to see ourselves as living ancestors right now, that what we do matters so much, not just because it's going to inspire someone who reads or listens to something that we create, though that, you know, too, but because the actions that we're taking right now affect the the very next generation in a massive way. And so it's so important 
So I really appreciate what you've shared there. Thank you. You know, like it just strikes me from what you said that every, every moment, every breath that we take, every part of our life, the mundane, like just making breakfast and mm-hmm. having coffee and like kissing your, your loved ones, all of that nothingness, even that is weighty and heavy because if you're pouring from your deepest love for that, that becomes the revolution, yeah. you know, and just energetically, like you're pushing forth the revolution with your very being. We all are. Yeah. When we give our greatest love at every moment, at every possible moment that we can, it just strikes me that like every moment is making this world or breaking it, you know? Yeah. Thank you for saying that. You just sparked that in me. Mm, Thank you. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at goodancestorpodcast and drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.